Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome back to A House on Fire, the podcast series brought to you by Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices. Thank you to both of those podcasts for including this special series. My name's Nathan Brown. I'm co-editor of the book and book editor at Science Publishing Company just outside Melbourne, Australia. And joining me as co-host on this uh, particular episode, as he has done a number of times, is Dr. Murray Jackson, who is co-editor of the book and also professor of... Practical Theology at Last Sierra University. How are you doing, Dr. Jackson? Doing well. Thank you so much, Nathan, and thank you uh, to our hearers. And as our guest on this particular episode, one of our contributors to the book, Dr. Greg Hunas. Now, firstly, let me ask you, Greg, tell us about your day job. My day job is working for the Southern California Conference of Seventh-day Adventists here in Southern California. I serve as what's called a region director. It's a position that is a hybrid between some presidential duties, uh, mostly ministerial director duties, uh, and some ethnic coordinator duties. And so that hybrid position puts me uh, working with about 23 churches and roughly 23 to 25 pastors at any given time. Very cool. And you're based in Glendale, California? That's correct. Very cool. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you for your contribution to uh, this book. You were one of our later contributors to arrive, but I think partly because it came out of uh, some of the study and some of the larger projects that you've been working on of late. And you're a relatively recent uh, doctoral graduate. And to a large extent, your chapter in this book has drawn out of uh, the study that you did. So can you tell us a little bit about your doctorate and your particular interest in that and then when it, how it gets us to your contribution to this book? I, I'm also a practical theologian. Um, I studied at Claremont, as did Dr. Jackson, and was in the PhD program for um, spiritual formation and religious education. Um, when I started the program, I was interested in uh, religion and, and uh, food or food and spirituality. Found out that there was a great deal of work that had been done around that. And of course, as you take different courses and time marches on and you get new exposures, uh, things come to the surface. Um, what really raised my interest in the question of racism, apart from the fact that it's one of the ubiquitous problems we face here in the United States in particular, and white culture struggles with in particular, um, is that I had a, uh, a coach, a, a thesis coach, dissertation coach, who was doing her work in, in uh, anti-racism and whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of conversations that really stimulated uh, my thinking around that topic. And then when Dr. Jackson approached me just after I'd finished my <laughs> dissertation to do this chapter, it was kind of a related, but a turning, a clear turning to uh, to write what I wrote. It was a wonderful experience. Well, my dissertation was um, uh, narrowed down on the question of why Adventists care about food for the sake of health and longevity. 
Yep. But do not care about food for purposes of ethics or environment. Hmm. Yeah, that's a big, big question. Right. So in trying to undercover that or uncover that, I really uh, just ended up going in a lot of different directions. And I think that's really the opposite of what most people would expect from a dissertation project. Mm hmm. I think they think of dissertations as really narrowing down and specializing in a very fine point of minutia. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the questions or criticisms I think I face in scholarship today is that quite the opposite. I had to expand and look at lots of different components in order to come to a sort of weaving, if you will, a tapestry of understanding about how it is that we've come to this place. Hmm. That's, that's a really interesting yeah, even just that sort of swimming against the flow of uh, academic uh, or scholarly expectation, I think, is a fascinating thing. So did you solve the problem? Oh, uh, no solution. <laughs> what, what I did as a practical theological project at the end was I, I went to see if this sort of um, contemporary politic evangelist, uh, evan evangelical uh, orientation-based issues could be overcome by developing a curriculum for pastors to see if I could improve their awareness ecologically and their interest in talking about and or preaching on ecological subjects. Mm, what wow. I found out was that many of them were actually very fearful of talking about earth stewardship, ecology, mm -hmm. environmentalism, call it what you want, because uh, that very project has been politicized. And any time yeah. it comes up, even though it's a biblical mandate, it's now solidly in the camps of Republican-Democrat split and politics, and members would be vocally critical of pastors if they ever mentioned such a thing because it was mm. taking a political perspective or side and weren't mm. Adventists supposed to be neutral politically. Yeah. So let me, th as you as you've raised that question, let me throw a, a working hypothesis I have that when we take a justice issue or a biblical mandate issue as you've described, and then refuse to talk about it for a you know because it has been politicized or it is perceived as having been politicized, is that actually us being sucked into the political vortex and being politicized? when we refuse to talk about it. Yeah, that's, that's the irony, isn't it? Sometimes no decision is a decision or mm. the fact that we want to stay connected to party even above um, living out some kind of ethic or faith mm -hmm. um, is really problematic and troubling. Uh, I mm. thought you were going to ask a theological question, and I was going to answer, yes, it's turning to the beast, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, um, yeah, I, I just, it's something that I've been wrestling with even in some particular issues I've been involved with in the church on this side of the ocean, uh, that when we kind of say, well, we can't take a position on that because, you know, there is a divide politically on it, it seems to me that we're actually outsourcing our ethics, our even our theology, to the political system. Correct. And thus, we are, that is the ultimate act of being politicized. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. 
And, and your cool. point's well taken. What you're really just saying is that the church has been politicized in its very effort to try to say we're neutral or to keep politics, which means that we really can't talk about anything of significance in the denomination. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that leaves us talking about the weather and the sport, and even the weather might be political depending on how you talk about it. Yeah, you can't really uh, right. say too much about the fact that it's the warmest day on record ever in this particular mm. time and place, mm. right? Yeah. 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 yeah, this is really timely. Uh, in fact, Nathan, kind of the way I think of this is, I, or the conversation is reminding me of when I read uh, Cornell West book, Democracy Matters. Mm -hmm. And he has this one chapter of the crisis of Christian identity in America, where he talks about the Constantinian Christians on the one hand and the prophetic Christians on the other. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if that we allow our political agendas to form the way we and curate the way we uh, think through the problems of the world as Christians, rather than allowing the, the narrative of the prophetic story of, of Jesus, the crucified one, mm. to curate how we think about these matters and engage in them. Mm. And so in some respect, uh, I, I really appreciate uh, Greg's chapter because it is kind of a call back to to critique the, the very forming nature of certain kinds of Christian uh, narratives, certain kinds of Christian discourse. Am I getting it right, uh, Greg, or or would you would you restate it different? Well, I love um, hearing you talk about Cornell West, and it just reminds me how much more reading I have to do in this life, in what time <laughs> I have left. Um, in, in terms of this idea of of somehow it coming back to um, an authentic uh, counter expression, if you will, um, of faith. Yeah, I, I think you've summarized it well. Uh, we've come full full circle, so to speak, in what you've just described. Constantinian Christians would be those who are in the system, I'm guessing, and those that have taken the trouble to meditate on the cross of Christ as we've been counseled to do might come to a very different conclusion. But then I think where my, my chapter really touches on this is that uh, we have become people who are primarily shaped by the political and cultural forces mm -hmm. of our day, not primarily the text. And our own hermeneutic doesn't lend itself to a, uh, a formation in the text. Mm -hmm. um, our own hermeneutic lends itself not to a simple read, but to a shallow one. Mm -hmm. And one in which we're very quick and ready to privilege uh, what it is that we think we know as we go into the text rather than learning the ways of Jesus uh, or to be prophetic from the text. And so it's, um, yeah, all the way from a kind of eisegesis and hermeneutical problem and, you know, cultural absolutism and um, a sort of misplacement of self in the overall picture of, of the corporate. Um, all of these things contribute to a sort of 
uh, willingness to ignore what's right before us and uh, address the crisis at hand. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Dr. Jackson? I, I, that was a kind of circuitous. <laughs> no, no, very helpful. Very helpful. So a question for you, Murray. Uh, you're the person that um, put us in touch with Greg with a view to him being a contributor to the book. And, you know, we had quite a few chapters already. And then you said, oh, we need to get Greg on board with this. Uh, what was it? And I, we've touched on it to a degree, but what was it that said, we need a chapter from this guy in the book? You know, Nathan, my my uh, memory is 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 sketchy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and, and part of the reason my memory is sketchy is because I've always had an agenda, a hidden agenda to, to get Greg on. <laughs> so I don't know when. I, I do know. I, let me say what I do remember. I remember Greg graciously came out and spent a, a, an afternoon uh, at the at the home here, maybe mid morning to afternoon. And mm -hmm. we had a rich conversation uh, uh, right here in the office. And as he was talking and as I was sharing, I know that I was just, I don't know if that was at the start, Greg, or in the middle or toward the end, but I was telling you, man, this is exactly what this, this project is missing. This mm. is a missing piece. And, uh, you know, soldier forward because this is what we need. Uh, Greg, do you remember? I remember that conversation. I don't have a great referential memory, so I can't tell you what month it was in or whether it was prior <laughs> to or just after other discussions. Uh, I think we had many uh, meaningful discussions, even while I was in process of trying to get the degree itself. And it wasn't long after I had actually finished that you said, you've really got to start writing this. We need this right away. And um, uh, I got going with it. But there were a lot of conversations that led up to that because, again, going back to the dissertation, this complexity of trying to understand uh, Adventism in context of American religion and Protestant sectarianism and schismatic tendencies and the DNA that comes to us in that and the mm. whiteness of the formation of the faith and the articulation of it from overwhelmingly um, so-called Anglo-Saxon descendants and, and white, white persons from Europe and the uh, uniquely individualistic uh, expression that came with Americanism and um, the, the journey from sectarianism uh, through a time of social activity and uh, social justice awareness, if you will, to a sort of post-reconstruction sellout, as Tim Golden talks about, where we went from being uh, advocates for um, you know, African slave freedoms to people who acquiesced to Jim Crow law and uh, entered segre segregation, and uh, it's kind of gone downhill from there. Uh, at the death of Ellen White, we didn't have any idea what to do. And so a bunch of people started building, building crutches in the cathedrals of our, our lives in which Santa Ellen becomes a major feature. Mm. And uh, generations following then have spent time trying to uh, knock her out of those crutches. So we've had 
wars over inspiration, the role of Ellen White, what role should she be playing today that continue even to this very moment. But in the meantime, she dies in 1915, and we have no no idea what to do. And as Michael Campbell so uh, carefully documents in 1919 and 1922, in his latest uh, project, Adventism moves decidedly toward fundamentalism mm, yeah. in reaction to uh, you know concerns about evolution and Freudian psychology and some of these kinds of things, modernism, basically. Mm, yeah. One of the things that I appreciate with your chapter and also just where it fits in the book is that you know, we can get into talking about some of these ideas philosophically and abstractly, but your chapter really lands it back in this matters in the real world. And, you know, this makes a difference in the lived experience of, you know, people's lives in all of our lives, ultimately. Um, I guess the practical side of that is, yeah, and we can, you know, it really brings back to, you know, that basic biblical command to do justice and that, you know, racism is one of the operating mechanisms or operating systems of injustice. Uh, but you, you know, point us back to that kind of, you know, real world lived experience of, you know, how can we be alert to this in the difference that it makes to people's lives around us? What's the, I guess, the practical things that you would point us to and that you do in your chapter? Can you give us a little bit of an overview of that? And yeah, I guess once you identify the problems, what are the things that we can begin to work towards in saying, well, imagine how it could be different? Yeah, I think what I don't say, but clearly imply through the building of the evidences that I bring is that political disengagement is not a real option. And that while I'm not talking about an endorsement of party, tribal identity, tribalism, party, you know, this sort of modern way of affiliating, and I know we have limited, uh, for all intents and purposes, very limited options in the United States in the two-party system. Mm. My, my advocacy is that Christians not just be one-issue people, mm. or that they don't look at just a, a sort of flat-sided view of, of, family histories or loyalties, but really consider how each issue is handled and make a moral decision about where they're going to go with something. Mm. Uh, abortion may be an incredibly important issue, and I, I think we've demonstrated that it is in this country, and yet to make that the one issue you vote uh, a candidate on is, is not mm. going to probably solve a whole host of other very meaningful and impactful questions. So, um, these are the kinds of things I, I think I, I imply or call Adventists to, and it's a particular, it's also spoken um, directly to uh, the black community and to communities of color, because I'm saying to them politically, yeah, of course it's not changing. Look, we keep voting white people. Law enforcement is dominantly white. The Supreme Court is white. It's all male white and mostly older male white. Yes, we're going to keep having the same problem cycle over and over and over again if this is the pattern of politics that we're willing to endorse and follow as a people rather than looking at what is it that God is asking us to do scripturally, such as caring for the environment, loving one another, right? So um, on a practical level, what I tie together is uh, 
uh, eco justice and environmental justice and racial justice. I got the idea from Gashin Hogg, uh, Haj, who is a Australian, by the way, sociologist, cool guy. Yeah. And I happened to get his book. I don't even remember how it fell into my hands, but it was fortuitous because it, it proved a wonderful read and very informative and, and groundbreaking in my view, because what he is able to correlate and I draw from is this idea that if we are aware of the environment, we're going to be aware of other issues related like racism. And if we're working on one, we're doing good toward another. Because when mm-hmm. you think about ecological harms and environmental harms, uh, they're, they're not equally distributed. Mm-hmm. See, so, you know, one of the things about privilege that, that I can talk about is that I live in Glendale. And I don't just live in Glendale, I live in North Glendale. And I don't just live in, you know, some neighborhood. I live in a neighborhood that has all kinds of things that make it um, beautiful. There are trees Mm -hmm. and birds and access to hills and wildlife. We have one of the largest parks in Glendale, which is really low in terms of the number of parks it has for the number of people it has. And we're right next to one of the major ones. We can walk the streets. We don't have to fear. uh, We're well policed. We're close to hospitals. We have dozens of really high-quality restaurants and grocery stores uh, around us, Mm. either an easy drive or walking distance. In other words, in my neighborhood, people aren't suffering the effects of a food desert or um, undue sort of uh, uh, other harms because we're a bit insulated. And certainly, we would never tolerate a toxic dump opening uh, up on the mountain above us. Never. Yeah. Uh, the money represented in, in my overall neighborhood and the number of kids and the political will and force of the people who live in the area would overwhelm any politician seeking to make that neighborhood a dump. Mm. But we aren't aware of and we aren't advocating as a group of people when that same agency goes to a poorer neighborhood or a neighborhood of color and makes a Superfund site next to it. Mm-hmm. We're just just not aware. And so um, bringing uh, black and brown bodied people uh, and and those those minorities living in the United States together to talk about environmental justice has a huge impact on the question of racism because of distribution of environmental harms. And then when we get to eco justice, we're looking at a related but very different construct. And that is eco-justice not only seeks for rights for living things, it actually seeks for rights for non-living environments. And that when I say non-living, ecosystems are living. What I really mean by that is even, you know, the rocks and the, the, what we would typically think of as um, inert, not living. And yet, you know, microorganisms and uh, microflora and fauna are present even in, in stones, and certainly soil is living, um, mm. and all the plants and connectivity and everything around it. So if we begin to care about the larger sort of um, inherent worth and value of something beyond the materials that are contained within, not the water rights or the oil rights or the mineral rights or the things that we can mine from it or extract or the way we can just 
cut the topsoil away and build a foundation for some new building or something like this. If we start to care about the natural environment uh, that also works in the favor of, of sustainability and uh, partners with, with those who are interested in, in anti-race efforts as, as well. Because the same sorts of phobias and harms are at work in everything as Audre Lorde brings out, right? Mm, yeah. I quote Audre Lorde. She brings out the notion that, you know, xenophobia, homophobia, all the sorts of things that, that are so rampant in this particular age are part of the same nexus or complex of thought problems, identity problems, social problems that go to racism. Mm, mm. You spend a bit of time exploring the idea of white supremacy culture. I did. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, yeah, uh, a fo- uh, uh, I'm going to look up the reference to that. Uh, Otoon and his partner uh, did a lot of work on white supremacy culture that's, that has been disputed or is uh, deemed controversial in some circles, but I found it enormously helpful um, because white supremacy culture is a way of identifying and naming traits it doesn't vilify a group of people per se. It doesn't. Uh, um, it doesn't even uh, limit itself to a group of people per se, because it's cultural. Um, white supremacy traits can be found in groups of immigrants. Can be found in groups of, uh, you know, various various culture backgrounds, uh, ethnic backgrounds. You don't have to be white to be a white supremacist. White supremacy culture is uh, an outlook. And in the colonial frame, I argue, uh, colonialism did its job incredibly effectively. Mm -hmm. And so when British or Portuguese or Spanish or other colonists, American uh, colonists went out Mm -hmm. and uh, colonized the world, and of course the latest wave of colonizations have been you know, technocratic or technical and um, uh, cultural, Mm -hmm. uh, they've done their job thoroughly and completely so that the values, uh, even in the missionizing of people within the church, the values of the church become a form of of colonial hegemony. And um, these values end up being invisible, but clearly there, the water we drink and the... uh, air we breathe, so to speak. Hmm. I, I, I want to just back up both giving appreciation uh, for what you're doing and an opportunity to, to highlight it uh, and, and also giving a sense of those who may be skeptics. Okay. So, so um, I, I'm thinking of when I teach a class humans and the environment at La Sierra University. There are students, and this is a senior level class, uh, students from all different disciplines have to take it. And some look for techno fixes. Some look for challenging the research of, of climate change so that they are climate change denialists. And there are different ways to, to, to play this game. And I I often note how Naomi Klein points out that the solution to global warming is not to fix the world, it is to fix ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So that you've chosen a way of 
interrelating this challenge of the environment with social issues. But it oftentimes some might choose to say, really, this can be done with certain technological changes. We can seed the clouds. We can, I mean, there are a, a plethora of options that they try to put forth. And in some respect, what you are doing by relating these is to, is to take the, the language out of the, the political realm into the faith realm by talking about, as you have even named here, uh, stewardship of, of creation, right? Uh, so that it's not as if a techno fix gets us off the hook from our call to be stewards of creation. And that, by the way, can't be done without relating to the matters of, of race. Talk, talk to me if I'm, if I'm reading this right. No, I think that's beautiful. You, you've, uh, you've said a, a mouthful and beautifully at that. Um, we are primarily caretakers of the garden. That's what we see in Genesis. Uh, the use of the word dominion is a questionable translation um, and not interpreted in the classic ways in which white evangelical Christians today interpret it, meaning you are entitled as a saved you know, once saved, always saved, born again Christian to plunder and rape the earth because God said you had dominion over it. And in the end, all will be forgiven and everything will be made new. That theology isn't biblical. Uh, we are formed of the dust and under the dust we return in Genesis. And we find that um, our task is to is to tend to the garden, which is a magnificent thing and a beautiful thing. Uh, Eden is this, this place of perfection because it is the environment there that provides everything that a human could want or need, right? Hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I, we could talk a lot about what original sin is or what, what the origin of sin is, but I think somehow sin is, uh, starts with really wanting to deny that we're part of something that's, that's bigger than we are and part of a natural created order in which we, we can't just adapt and work our way away from, but we must somehow take care of. I think that, that that's, that's part of the, the question there. Um, in, in other words, if God can save the dirt man, God can save the dirt. <laughs> well, and, and it, even more pointedly, how can you say you love the creator and not care for the creation the creator declared good, right? Hmm. I think the disconnect there is profound, especially as we move further toward fundamentalism and our denominational leaders uh, advocate and, you know, take to general conference session motions which move us to an even firmer stance on the six literal days of creation and the seventh day literal Sabbath 6,000 literal years ago. And that is what's important, but there's no interest in conservancy. There's no interest in care. And hmm. that disconnect is not only something I think, you know, we can easily apprehend as we talk about it as scholars and writers, but I think it's something our, our youth are very aware of. I, you know, hmm. It's obvious to anybody with a kind of open inquiring kind of stance. Yeah, the reality is that the creationism that actually matters is creation care, not pseudo-creation science, um, or bickering about you know some of those things that we 
will always struggle to convince anybody else who isn't already convinced of. Um, and so if we were to actually be creationists in that bigger, more ethical uh, understanding of it, then probably some of those other arguments just wouldn't matter as much. And if they did, we'd have more credibility to have them anyway. I totally agree. I, I think that that's at the heart of the matter. Um, yeah. And, and racism is a stewardship of relationship and people. It's an understanding. Uh, Anti-racism is an understanding that we we share far more than we have in difference and that uh, God's love isn't specific and selective, it's universal. Um, mm. And that the call to salvation may in practice look a little different based on the sins of each people group, but uh, nonetheless is a call to uh, repentance, redemption, and hope, and, and unification in Christ. Mm. Yeah. As I think of uh, your uh, your discussion about fundamentalism, I'm I'm thinking about I, I was I don't know Nathan if you also received the email, but uh, Dr. David Williams at, at Harvard University uh, emailed me yesterday. I'm going to respond, but uh, he he was appreciating that this book had gotten out, was published, and and he spoke about the need for it in our faith community to our faith communion to, to really address these issues. He had published an opinion in Adventist Review that said something like, um, in one of the pull quotes, if we win persons by distorting and compromising the gospel, what have we won them to? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and I think your, your chapter where you deal with this kind of this kind of uh, history of, of a fundamentalist ethos taking over. Uh, yeah, what, what have we won them to? I'm deeply concerned about that. It's related, certainly, but it's, it's way beyond this topic as well. Um, fundamentalism relies on a, uh, a kind of approach to Scripture that places excessive authority uh, on the text itself, which is a white supremacy trait, and not upon reason or the ways in which we contextualize or interpret text. And we have, uh, in our populism, we have uh, decentered largely expertise, particularly what we might call soft expertise. So apart from people who are able to create certain technologies, we don't have much faith that anybody knows anything or could really be an expert in anything. And so we've watched news anchors uh, host people on television shows that mock expertise and deny uh, the science or what's been written, for example, about global warming or um, uh, deny that police departments have certain problems or trends in relationship to, you know, black populations or something else. And this denial of expertise, this denial that somehow uh, somebody might know something uh, in a way that's important to pay attention to, um, has led us to a culture of extreme and radical individualism, 
um, which doesn't lend itself either to careful spiritual reflection, biblical reflection, um, nor sacred community, and certainly not to the will to address larger social issues of our day, including racism and environmentalism. Mm. Hmm. Now, your uh, chapter is called A House on Fire in a Burning World. You play a little bit, in, particularly in the opening, with our book title, um, which pre-existed your chapter. Uh, but one of the comments on, you know, as part of your introduction that really caught my attention, racism threatens our collective oikos or household, the validity of our worship and the potency of our faith. That's a real challenge to, you know, the Adventist church, which you've particularly addressed in that paragraph. Yeah. And we've touched upon aspects of that, but can you kind of, why do you think this is such an important topic and you talk about it as such an urgent topic as well and you know drawing on the the house on fire kind of thing that you know that requires an urgent response uh but particularly for the the challenge that you know the threat that uh racism offers to our faith and the significance of our faith um can you give us a little bit more on that yeah you you cannot Again, just as you cannot worship the creator without an appreciation for, respect for, love of, uh, curatorship of creation, you cannot love the God-man who is created in your own image. If you don't understand who Jesus was as a Sephardic Palestinian Jew, in the context of the Roman Empire, in largely rural settings, not a carpenter as we would imagine in Northern Europe, but probably <laughs> a stonemason in a local quarry uh, for Roman ambitions and building projects. Mm. Um, and you don't understand um, the way in which religion um, both fought against Roman oppression and used Roman oppression. <laughs> yes. Colluded with Roman oppression in order to achieve its aims. Mm. If you don't understand the way in which uh, religiosity had replaced a spiritual connection, um, and if you don't understand that the law has to be born of something deeper if not ethics, and if not ethics love, then you really don't have any apprehension of the Christ. And if you think of Christ as the one who created humankind, so beautifully and intimately described in Genesis sort of narrative, um, then you can't appreciate the fact that to denigrate the image of God in one human being is to denigrate the image of God in all human beings. Hmm. So that's theologically sort of uh, my underlying. I don't state all of that in my chapter, but that's the, the sort of underlying background of the threat. Um, our worship of this God is also shallow and meaningful. Uh, not meaningful, I should say, because if 
we come to the altar, as it were, and we have a problem with our brother, we're commanded to go deal with it. Mm-hmm. Communion itself depends on community and some kind of unity within community. This is the importance and the beauty of table ministry. It's a space of, uh, and not a reward, but it, it's a space where we go to when we have worked out our reconciliations and made our peace found our shalom and community, if you will. Hmm. Uh, and so when we worship apart from the recognition of the uh, sovereignty of God and the status of all humans as children of God, then we are worshiping falsely indeed. Hmm. And probably a Christ who never existed, but one made clearly in our own image in our own whiteness, in my case. Mm-hmm. And it's destructive not just to our worship um, and our, our theology, um, it's, it's that which will uh, bring about a greater destruction because when we're willing to uh, live out privilege on the backs of people who have suffered and are suffering, and uh, live out um, the facts of exploitation in this this global economy, uh, in our own uh, economies and, and lives, and, and not recognize those privileges and not get back and, and not seek to rectify that essential injustice. Uh, we simply um, profit from it and perpetuate it. And our own lack of self-awareness becomes Uh, a kind of social downfall Um, because in a country as diverse as the United States, um, if we can't move past something like racism and uh, other phobias that characterize the current age, uh, we cannot be unified. The united part of the States uh, begins to be in doubt. (laughs) Indeed. You know, I, I would like to, if you don't mind, um, the subtitle of the book is How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. And the Advent is the, the, is the hope of the, the appearing, the return. I love this quote from you. The prophetic call must now move us beyond escapist eschatology to an embrace of survival and to social and environmental action. It's time to move past the discomforts of difference. The world is already on fire. It's burning. And yet, as Jeremiah 10, 8, 20 said, laments, we are not saved. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's what Jeremiah says. Um, well, thank you for bringing up that quote. Escapist eschatology uh, is a big problem, not just in Adventism, but in evangelicalism. Mm. It doesn't mean we don't have a special place in this. Uh, and again, it's kind of window dressing. And I'll tell you why. Well, we can talk about what a Seventh-day Adventist is, and the seventh day is part of the Sabbath and therefore referent to creation and so forth and so on. And Adventist refers to the coming of Christ both the first time and the second time uh, in judgment and, and so forth, or in uh, uh, 
taking us home to heaven and then third time in judgment. We can talk about Advent and Advent, the meaning of all of, of what it means to be an Adventist. Um, that's fine. And yet we have this escapist eschatology that ignores part of the very book we rely most on to tell us what that's all about, which is Revelation. Hmm. Revelation eleven eighteen says, if we're going to take a literal read of scripture, I will destroy those who destroy the earth. <laughs> um, don't see that mentioned a lot in publication, right? You, you don't, <laughs> don't get a lot of that in our uh, sermons from our evangelists and so forth. The focus is this kind of sort of um, simplistic notion that somehow belief, not necessarily even belief that's really translated to ethic or action, um, is a changing force that will make us safe to save. And that in the uh, denouement of Earth's history, when, when uh, Christ appears, uh, we'll be taken up and all will be made new, as if um, it can just be sort of flushed and uh, new water put in the bowl, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem with this is, of course, we've been talking about the second coming, and this is where I'll get into trouble in this podcast. We've been talking about the second coming for 2,000 years. And ever since uh, we were founded, 1844 was a failure of the second coming or a failure, rather, of our calculations, Millerist calculations around the time of the second coming. But this event can only be eschatologically verified. In other words, we will not know when it's happening and that it's happening until it's happening. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's an awful lot to bet that we can just trash the environment and let the earth burn and forget about racial tensions and hatred and environmental woes and species extinction because this God who we've been saying will come for 2,000 years is going to come deliver us from ourselves and the mess we've created of God's garden, which we were called to tend. Mm. So that's escapist eschatology. I mean, I think there's a place for a sort of denouement of history and a, and a recreation of all things. I'm not convinced that we don't actually have a role in that somehow. Um, maybe we don't. I, I, I can't say. But it, it strikes me that we're a little bit cavalier about what we've done and what's ahead and the harms and uh, suffering that it, it's going to cause at the very least at this juncture. Mm. Um, and so not to participate in making the world a better place uh, in anti-racism and environmental justice and eco-justice, to me, to me misses the mark. Um, yeah. And so I would just encourage us to be a people that is faithful to an eschatological calling, but shifts it up and away from the beam me up Scotty mentality to the... Uh, you know, how do I make the world a better place, this world that God loved and said it was good? Hmm. may seem yeah. simplistic, but um, that would kind of be where I'm, where I'm sitting. <laughs> I like that kind of simplicism. Is that the right <laughs> word? <laughs> That's cool. 
Well, thank you for sharing with us and thank you for your contribution to the book and your support of it. Um, certainly appreciate the perspectives that you bring to that. As I said before, I think that your chapter is one of the significant ones in the book that get us back from all the important theories that we've talked about and the big theology and big ideas and gets us back to you know, the justice of loving our neighbour and what that means in the suburb across from the one we might live in or you know, across town or wherever that might be uh, or across the world indeed. So that's a significant thing. Um, so thank you thank for sharing you. with us on this episode, uh, Dr. Greg Hoonis, uh, author of A House on Fire in a Burning World, his chapter in A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. Thank you, Murray, for also being with us. Thank you. And thank you for listening in as we continue our series on the House on Fire book. Thank you to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it.